This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 26. We're on the road to the cross now. There are stops along the way, like the one we're about to study, but at each stop and at every turn, we see Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, set the standard for Christian living. He shows love. He's kind to his betrayer. He humbles himself and he follows the will of the Father. It is the grace of God on display. The challenge for us is to decide, what will we do with Christ? Is he savior or just another teacher? Is he Messiah or just another martyr? Your decision will decide your eternity. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 25. Let's follow along together here. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. There are three road signs here on the way to the cross that we need to understand if we're going to draw closer to God and understand the heart of Christ here. The first one I'm going to call the treachery of people, verses 14 through 16. Matthew wants his readers to see that human free will does not operate apart from divine sovereignty, which we can say that even though Judas planned to betray Jesus, the Old Testament had already prophesied that event. For example, in Psalm 41, verse 9, when we read that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So the, the betrayal part of the passion narrative had already been determined. Actually, the whole thing had been determined, but Scripture is very clear that this is God's plan. The first gospel now provides the details of the betrayal here and also reveals the true colors of this fake disciple. Judas was not really a true follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says he was a thief. He was an unregenerate thief. Judas was also fond of money, the love of which is the root of all kinds of evil, we're told in 1 Timothy 6, 10. And people like to speculate about the other reasons Judas betrayed Christ. They think that he wanted to force Jesus to usher in the kingdom immediately and crushing the Romans. And he thought that perhaps by instigating the Sanhedrin to arrest him, he would accomplish that purpose. But the reality is the Bible doesn't say that. 
People like to speculate that it might have been true. We don't know, but God has not revealed that. The only revelation we have from God is he was a thief, that this was the predetermined plan of God. God has foreordained this event. The other detail about this event is an interesting one, is that the devil himself entered Judas at that moment of betrayal. Luke tells us that he possessed the fake disciple. He entered the body of the counterfeit disciple here. Usually, every other case of demon possession in the New Testament was perpetrated by lower-ranking demons. We know the reason for that. It makes perfect sense. Now, Satan is busy organizing the whole thing. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the CEO of that enterprise. He doesn't do a lot of the dirty work, but in this case, he did. But it's interesting here that even though Lucifer himself entered Judas here, there was no foaming at the mouth. No bizarre supernatural manifestation, no super strength here, no screaming, nothing like that, which are normally features that we see in demon possession cases in the New Testament. And I suspect that many times in my life, and perhaps you have experienced that too, you may have spoken with someone who was demon possessed and not even know it. There is no need for a bizarre manifestation. The devil is a master of deception. He is the father of all lies, John 8, verse 44. So sometimes he does his best work in disguise by sounding intellectual, by using people's normal voices, by having complete control over people's faculties but not even showing it. And I know that that's the case because anyone who has ever discouraged you from doing evangelism, whether they are possessed or not, they are being the mouthpiece of Satan, just like Peter was when he tried to dissuade Christ from going to the cross. And I've had people tell me, well, we shouldn't be doing evangelism. Quote-unquote believers telling me that. And I know exactly where that comes from. It doesn't come from God. It comes from Satan himself. Anytime someone tries to discourage you from obeying the word of God, They may or may not be demon-possessed, but they are being the mouthpiece of Satan. Every time someone tries to bring up the past to you, past sins that have been already forgiven, they belong to the past, you have been redeemed from them, we know that Satan is behind that because he is the accuser of the brethren. Don't listen to their foolishness. You don't even have to argue. Say, thank you for your opinion. I will continue to share the gospel and train my people to do the same. Now, What we learn then from this is that even the free will of the devil is subject to divine sovereignty. And that is a significant lesson that we need to understand here. Even the devil is subject to the will of the Father. He he doesn't operate on his own, even though he has free will. He had the free will to possess the body of Judas here. But he cannot influence anyone apart from God's permission. Now, our adversary and the world, and he uses the world, wants us to think that he and God are two equally powerful forces battling for control. And who knows? It's a toss-up. Somebody, you know, the devil may win this one. Nothing can be further from the truth. The devil has had so much success in trying to convince people that he and God are sort of co-equal. They're just arch enemies. And people believe that. They're not equivalent in authority. The Bible is very clear about that. In his infinite wisdom, from eternity past, God determined that Lucifer created originally as a cherub of light. Remember that. That is his origin. Lucifer is a created being. Okay, God created him as an angel of light. And in eternity past, God has determined that Lucifer would fall from heaven and would commit sin. The Bible says that iniquity was found in him and he would be sent to the earth to tempt Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
Sin and death would enter the human experience, but Jesus would become flesh, die on a cross, rise on the third day to redeem sinners and defang the devil by crushing his head, metaphorically speaking. God also foreordained that Satan himself would take hold of Judas's body in the first century in order to accomplish the treacherous deed that sort of kicked off the passion narrative. And even though the event had been determined from before the foundation of the world, I want you to know that doesn't diminish the hurt of Jesus Christ. It broke his heart that a good friend, a friend who he welcomed at his table, would betray him. And we know that because of what John tells us in John 13, verse 21. When Jesus has said this, he became troubled in spirit, the Bible says, and he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So Jesus was heartbroken, even though he already knew from before the foundation of the world, from even before he became flesh, that Judas one day would betray him. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus was profoundly hurt by this. And one of the reasons for that is that, sadly, treason is a part of many stumbling blocks of the world. Matthew 18, verse 7. Treachery, treason, betrayal, these are all part of the consequences of the fall of men that took place in Genesis 3. Ever since that day, brothers have been betraying brothers. The case in point is the story of Cain and Abel in the very next chapter in the book of Genesis. And friends have been betraying friends. And now we see the same thing played out in the narrative of the passion of Christ. Things didn't get better. Paul was betrayed. He warned Timothy about a man named Demas, who having loved the present world, Paul says, has deserted me. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. And people even from the Corinthian church who supposedly loved Paul and Paul loved them, they accused him of all kinds of wrong motives, questioning his integrity and even his calling, listening to false teachers and all of that. So betrayal, treachery and all of that is part of the world. Unfortunately, it makes us look forward to the time where this will no longer happen. But the proverbial backstab is part of the tribulation of this world. That Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world, he says. And that's also the reason that the book of Proverbs points out that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Proverbs 18 verse 19. So we know that God has used or recruited this betrayal of Judas in order to kick off the passionate narrative. That was God's plan, God's way of determining how the whole thing would play out. But we know that betrayal devastates reputations, it splits churches, it separates families and ruins friendships. It's part of our life in this fallen existence. If you haven't already, you will experience betrayal at one level or another. You may have already. And you sometimes you may have been the perpetrator. Don't ever underestimate your ability to commit the grossest sin there is. The moment you say, I will never do that, you will fall on your face. And you are at great danger of falling into the temptation of pride. Now, people exercise free will every time they commit sin, but their wrong choices don't interfere with divine sovereignty. That was the case with Judas here. No one forced him to uh, betray Christ. He offered, he went to the Sanhedrin and said, what will you pay me? Because he loved money. He, so he had the free will to do that. He went to them and offered, hey, I'm, I'm selling my loyalty to you. It was his free will. It was his free choice. It was the wrong choice. And the fact that it was a wrong choice did not interfere with divine sovereignty. Even though he made that choice, God will hold him accountable for that. In fact, God will hold every one of us accountable for the choices we make. You know, we like to think that we have this great free will, and it's true. We have free will. 
God has called us to make choices. But that free will does not operate apart from the sovereignty of God and we will have to answer for every one of the choices we make. So yes, you can choose all you want, but I want you to know that that ability that you have to make choices does not operate apart from the sovereignty of God. God has already determined everything that will happen in your days. But that doesn't change the fact that you will have to answer for your choices. God never acts contrary to his nature. Because you're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, I'm a little confused here. So you mean to tell me that God is permitting the evil of the betrayal of Christ? That's exactly what the Bible says. And if you think about it, can anything be more seemingly evil than an innocent dying in a place of guilty sinners? And yet, that was God's way of providing for your salvation and mine. And that is not evil. That is God's way of providing for your salvation and mine. Remember the character of God. He is light and in him there's no darkness at all. We're told in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalms chapter 100 verse 5, The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145 verse 9. And there are several other verses of the Bible that proclaim the goodness of God, the fact that he is loving, that he is kind, He is sovereign, obviously he's omnipotent, but nothing he does is contrary to his nature. So next time we'll say, well, God can do all things. We need to qualify that statement and add a comma there in another sentence to say God can do all things that are in alignment with his nature. God cannot sin. God cannot lie because these things are contrary to his nature. So God is good, and in His goodness, He allowed and permitted the evil of the betrayal of a friend in order to launch the passion narrative, which would include evil, namely, the killing of an innocent man, the God-man, for the remission of sins. So Judas' treacherous act put Jesus on the road to crucifixion, which belongs to the center of God's redemptive plan, that good plan. But remember that Christ was delivered over to the authorities by the predetermined plan of God, Acts 2, verse 23. So he was not a victim of the cleverness of man. He is acting in accordance to God's predetermined plan. So we're going to call this first road sign of the road to Calvary the treachery of people because God recruited that, God enlisted and ordained, foreordained that event in order to kick off the narrative of the of the passion that will bring salvation to you and to me. Now the second sign we're going to call the timing of God, verses 17 through 19. The scene here reveals that Jesus orchestrated everything, including the celebration of the Passover with the disciples, in order to associate the slaughter of many lambs, the Paschal lambs of the time, with his sacrifice on the cross. Now, let's not miss the connection. It's not a coincidence that they're celebrating the Passover on that occasion, specifically because next week we're going to see that Jesus replaced the Passover feast with the Lord's table. He says this is the new covenant. But he timed everything in order to teach not only the disciples, but the people who will be reading this later. Now, the disciples and Jesus probably celebrated the Passover feast in the two years prior to that. This was not... Anything unusual that they are encountering here. Because remember, they have been with Jesus now for three years. They have probably celebrated the Passover feast for the past two years. They didn't see anything out of the ordinary other than the announcement of the crucifixion and the betrayal announcement in verse 21. They were shocked. They were grieved. They were worried. Is it I, Lord? Wow. 
In the prior two years, for example, that they were celebrating Passover together, there was nothing of the kind. And by announcing, therefore, his betrayal, Christ is making sure and confirming that the cross was not the product of human scheming, and neither was he a victim of a coup. Now, the disciples asked Jesus about the preparations for the Passover because there was a lot of details that they needed to observe for the Passover feast. This was just an, oh, let's get together for a meal. No, they would have to go to the book of Exodus and read all of the details. Obviously, they were familiar with it because this was an yearly thing for them. But they asked for the preparations because there was a very elaborate time of preparation. Mark and Luke point out that two disciples would have to go and prepare the lamb for the sacrifice. This was in accordance with the instructions from the book of Exodus. And they would identify the host by seeing a man carrying a pitcher of water. It was God's predetermined plan that Jesus' arrest would happen in the Garden of Gethsemane after the fact. And the reason for that is because he had words to say to the 11 faithful disciples and not to the traitor. But before his capture in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would give the 12, including Judas, a clear demonstration of his love and divine grace. Okay, John points out what that was, and it's not in the Gospel of Matthew, but when you read the four Gospels and you try to harmonize the four accounts, we come to the clear picture of what happened here. Jesus washed the feet of these guys, including Judas, and this took place in the home of this unnamed host here. So even though he knows Judas is going to betray him, he is loving him. He is demonstrating divine grace and kindness to his betrayer here. And he demonstrates this perfect love by performing a task fitting for the lowest ranking servant of the house. Again, let's not miss the symbology, the imagery here in the picture. Remember, he is the king of kings. Matthew describes Jesus as a king. And here in the gospel of John, we're being shown here the picture of the king serving his people. Demonstrating love to them in a selfless way. Demonstrating love even to the guy who would betray him. Picturing the greater work of redemption that he would perform a day later. And there is also the picture of cleansing here. He is cleansing the feet. He's cleaning the feet of the disciples. And obviously that picture, the fact that his death would clean people from their sins, whoever will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, on the journey to the cross, besides retaining complete control of his own suffering, Jesus took the opportunity to teach an important lesson to the men who would lead the Christian movement. Servanthood is at the core of what we do. And if Jesus is teaching the disciples who would lead the early church to serve one another, church obviously, the lesson for us is to do the same. In fact, Jesus confirmed that while he was cleaning the feet of the disciples in John 13 verse 4. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So obviously the lesson for us is this. We are to replicate and imitate the selfless love of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ, by acting as a low-ranking servant, not the boss. We love to call ourselves servants. The problem is when we are treated like one. See, we don't like to be treated like servants. But if we are to imitate Christ, if we are to honor the one who gave his life for us, we are to do this. We are to do likewise and wash each other's feet 
Now, the question is, are we in the 21st century supposed to wash one another's feet in case you weren't? But we're literalists, pastors, right? We take the Bible literally. So does that mean after the service here we should be taking people's shoes off and washing their feet? And the answer to that is obviously no, because this was a cultural distinctive. This practice is obsolete. In those days, people would walk on dirty roads and their, their feet would get dirty. And as an act of hospitality and servanthood, the host would send a servant to wash people's feet. So that's the idea that we should observe, not the practice necessarily, because there's no more point in washing people's feet. But the point is we show humble, sacrificial, and selfless love to one another, even to people who we know are going to mistreat us. Because that's how we imitate Christ. How can we honor that virtue? I'll give you some examples from the Bible on how to apply that. In Romans 12, verse 10, for example, we're told we are to prefer one another. We are to consider one another more important. Philippians 2, verse 3, we are to love one another like we love ourselves. Matthew 19, verse 19. And again, this is not hard to understand. It's hard to apply because we already love ourselves way too much. You speak highly of yourself. You defend your own motives with all your energy. So let's just do that and apply to my brother and sister in Christ. And therefore, we're going to be honoring what Jesus expects us to do because Jesus did this to the twelve. He washed Judas's feet too. Now here's a third road sign on the way to the cross, the tenderness of Christ, verses 20 to 25. Even though the majestic Savior knew Judas was a traitor, he treated him with kindness. Not only he washed the feet of this man, but he welcomed him and received him at his table. Given him, the false disciple here, plenty of opportunity to repent. But remember, his evil deed had already been prophesied and had to be fulfilled according to Scripture. We're told that in the book of John, chapter 13, and also chapter 17. The question is, would you ever welcome a traitor in your house? Would you serve bread to someone you know has just planned to backstab you? Would you do that? I know my temptation will be to expose and embarrass my critic publicly. But that's not what Jesus does. And he says, you do likewise. So we know where to imitate Christ and withhold judgment and withhold the temptation to expose people publicly. There's no reason to do that. There's a very specific instruction that Jesus himself gives in Matthew 18 on when and how to do that. But that's not the case here. So Jesus here is showing his betrayer that he loved him. He was showing him kindness and hospitality. And then he instructed him to fulfill his predetermined role in the passion narrative. And still, it would have been better for Judas not to have been born. Because non-existence is better than living forever in the torment of hell. You see, what Jesus is saying here is to not exist at all is better than to spend eternity in hell. People want us to believe, the culture outside there want us to believe that hell is a fun place. The hell is a never-ending party with music and food and drugs and, and rock and roll and, 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 and sex and whatever. Nothing can be further from the truth. From the perspective of the Bible, it's better to not even exist than to miss out on spending eternity with God. And it's better for not only Judas, but for every unbeliever who remains in his or her sin to not exist than to die and go to hell. The lesson here is that everyone who learns about the kindness of Christ, who learns about the plan of salvation and know about Jesus Christ and still denies him or fails to come to him, 
is just like Judas. They're betraying Christ. They experience the fullness of God's provisions by living in the world that God created, by enjoying the air that we breathe, by enjoying all the benefits of living in the world that is sustained by God. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that the world is sustained by the word of his power, talking about Jesus. They experience Christ-like hospitality, as it were, but tragically, they decline to come to Jesus Christ. They decline his generosity. And if, and if they insist in their rebellion, it's better for them to not be born, the Bible says. But the good news, church, and we'll conclude with that, the good news is that the better to not have been born people can change your destiny. I have some in my family, and you probably have some too. I know some of you asked us to pray for people in your family who are in this category. The better to not have been born than to remain in your rebellion against God. You know, Jesus restored Peter. He could have restored Judas, and he can restore anyone. So the way to the cross has three road signs. We just saw them. The treachery of people, the timing of God, and the tenderness of Christ. And at the end of this road, as we will see, there is forgiveness, restoration, and eternal life. Don't miss his kindness like Judas did. Don't miss God's love through Jesus Christ. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of betrayers. And he invites everyone to abandon their sins and come to him. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. And I'll remind you that we have several books available now, all based on Pastor's Sermon Series. Revelation, Unveiling God's Plan for Humanity, Ruth and the Kindness of God, and Pastor's latest book, Kingdom Parables, 12 Signposts to Guide You Through Turbulent Times, are all great resources and excellent gifts for those you love. Visit our website to get your copies today. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace. Grace.